following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Good morning. I'll be reading from Romans chapter 7, verse 15 through 25a. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched being that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning's gospel reading is from uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 19, and then 25 through 30, and it's on page 792 in the, uh, I'm going to say it, Pew Bibles. (laughs) The pews, come on. (laughs) All right. Uh, So this is the section that's uh, titled, Jesus Praises John the Baptist, but we pick it up at verse 16. And it says, But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We have played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And then 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So I will um, gladly come back to that gospel passage in just a minute, but first I want to talk for a few minutes about the epistle reading we heard earlier, the, the, the reading from the book of Romans. Um, 
I feel I should make a very quick disclaimer about this, which is that always um, you want to pay attention to the context of a passage. And I think in the book of Romans that might be especially true. This is a book where the Apostle Paul makes a fairly wide-ranging, you might even say sprawling, uh, arguments about the combination of law and grace. And it's just a very complicated book, and it's almost always unfair to take out a verse or a passage from the book of Romans. And you're just like, you got to go back to the one before that and the one after it and the one before that and after that. And really, you should just read the whole book. And that's not what we're going to do today. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Um, <laughs> but I wonder how many of you, when you heard that passage read earlier, I think it was, was it Kristen who read Romans 7? How many of you were familiar with some of the words in that passage? If you grew up in the church, you probably have heard that passage before, maybe lots of times. And I wonder, I can probably guess, I wonder what the sort of inner emotional reaction you had was to that text. Um, does anybody else associate that passage with a, at least a little bit of sort of self-loathing? I'll just ask you this question. How, how well has self-loathing served you in your life? What is the good that it has done to you so far? Let's pray. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a lot more to say, but I don't want you to miss that. And if you were to leave right now, I, I think that that would, for some of you, be all you needed to hear today from me. I, I would humbly submit. How well has self-loathing served you in your spiritual life or any other part of your life? And, and maybe that's something to let go of. This Romans passage has been used to bake shame and self-loathing into our religious practice and our understanding and our spirituality. And if you've had the kind of experience where that shame and self-loathing is baked into your religious experience, or maybe you could even pick up on it if you've never been in church or read the Bible before in your whole life, and the general feeling of it kind of fits with something that you've experienced outside the church because... The church does not have a monopoly on in encouraging self-loathing and shame. We're just like the best at it. Um, <laughs> wherever you've gotten it from, you might have heard those words from Romans chapter 7 and felt angry or sad. You might have felt a lot of things, but you might have felt angry and, and wanted to reject it altogether and say, like, oh, it's, uh, if we're going to go down that road, I'm not going to stick around here very long. And I got to thinking about this. It's, it is kind of, we have to admit, it is kind of trendy in our little set here uh, at Artisan and, and in the, the waters of Christianity that we tend to swim in. It's kind of trendy to, to be a little bit aloof with the Apostle Paul, to make fun of him a little bit, to call him a bit of a hard customer. Um, <laughs> he's so self-assured. He's so arrogant. And I think we also have kind of turned him into a little bit of a boogeyman, right? There's even a book that, I, that came out maybe 20 years ago called Jesus versus Paul, right? Um, the implication being that Jesus has one thing to say and Paul has another thing to say, um, which I think is an oversimplification. Also, it's somewhat the thesis of this sermon, but... Um, Whatever feelings you might have had toward the writer of that letter, maybe you didn't know his name was Paul, but now you do. Whatever feelings you had toward Paul when that passage was being read to you, I wonder if, what if, hear me out, what if instead of feeling anger or wanting to push him away or off a cliff, instead we decided to extend compassion to the Apostle Paul? 
I see it in your face. That seems like a little bit of a weirdo thing to say. Why would we extend compassion? How can you even, what does that even mean? I think um, the very fact that it sounds weird for us to say as readers of the Bible, could we extend compassion to one of the authors of the Bible, um, is maybe a clue about what we're doing that maybe we shouldn't do when we read the Bible. What I mean is this. It wouldn't feel weird to propose extending compassion to an author of the Bible unless we had him on some kind of a pedestal. And I think we have the authors of the Bible on some kind of a pedestal, right? Even if it's a pedestal that we want to throw rocks at. Now, that probably comes from having a fairly high view of Scripture, which I think is a good thing, generally speaking. But what I mean is this. If the only thing that the Bible can be for those people who have a high view of Scripture is a 100% precise dictation of the exact thoughts of God, unfiltered by any amount of humanity and not subject to the mind and psyche of its authors, then we are going to have a tendency to turn those authors, including Paul, into sort of demigods. Right? They're not God, obviously, but they did write a book of the Bible, and I don't see anybody in this room who's done that. <laughs> People who not only can't write a false word, but also could never have a false thought. That's not somebody who needs your compassion, is it? But that is not the only way to think about the Bible, even if you consider yourself, as I consider myself, someone who has a high view of Scripture. What if we thought about the Bible as inspired by God and written by ordinary human people? Not pedestal people, regular people. If that's what we expect from the Bible, then we also ought to expect to see some actual humanity seeping through the words of, on the page, which is going to include personal struggles, anger, Criticism that might be overly harsh sometimes. Maybe some level of immaturity. Maybe some ugliness towards others. Right? Now, we apply this all the time, by the way. I do anyway. When we talk about the book of Psalms, which is music, it's poetry, it's lyrical. Right? There's a lot of metaphor and figurative language in that book of the Bible, and so it might feel a little safer to do that with the book of Psalms, but what that book is doing is expressing the realness of human emotion. And just because Paul is trying to create this very complicated Rube Goldberg mathematical explanation of Christian salvation, no offense, Paul, if you're listening, <laughs> doesn't mean that we're not also going to see that Paul's own humanity coming through the, the words. Does that make sense? <clears throat> And if you can get to that place, you might be able to extend some compassion toward this author. And it might change how you read and receive a passage like this one. Um, as anybody who has done the incredibly difficult work of facing one of their real-life, present-day boogeymen and coming to the incredible act of being able to extend compassion toward that real-life, present-day boogeyman. Anybody who's done that can attest how difficult it is, how long it takes, how many times you have to re-up and reinvest in that intention. And they can also attest that that is the thing that finally releases them 
from the, the prison of pain that that person put them into. So when we come to verses 19 and 20 of chapter 7 of the book of Romans, where he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. And you start to hear those words and you go, Oh boy, here he comes. He's setting us up. He's going to slam us for our own sinfulness. What would it be like instead to read those words and go, He sounds like he's in a lot of pain. And I know that pain too. Because I can't go five seconds without doing something that makes me hate myself a little bit. I can't go one day without hurting somebody who I love. I can't go one week without falling back into that thing that I thought I had finally gotten over this time. That might be a place to start anew with this passage. And then maybe it can go in the other direction too. And maybe that's the thing that finally gives you the strength or the capacity or the desire to extend compassion to one of your real life boogeymen who's here with us in the present day, who isn't just words on a page. That's something that can take years of work. And that's okay. You will be tempted to give it up many times. All that having been said, whatever we would do with the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, I do think that Jesus offers us a different angle on this topic. He offers us a different posture, um, a different way of thinking about and talking about our failings. So let's talk about the gospel reading from today for a few minutes. You might have noticed it starts out with Jesus making an analogy of sorts. Did you catch that? He says, to what do I compare this generation, right? And then he's like um, talking about children sitting in a marketplace, and I think there was a flute involved, (laughs) right? Now, sometimes I admit that these analogies that, that Jesus makes, sometimes it seems like they had a cultural resonance that has been lost to time. Right? Like a much wiser and kinder version of Dr. Phil. <laughs> you, know? you know those things Dr. Phil would say? You're like, what? <laughs> Buddy, you can't build a parking garage on top of a termite mound? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wasn't going to. <laughs> you don't want rats in your radiator, do you? <laughs> no. And yet I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Right? So I think it's okay to think that way when Jesus says something about kids sitting in the marketplace playing the flute. You're like, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> but then he goes on to say something that we can all understand. We don't have to worry about the cultural resonance that might have been lost through the centuries. Because he goes on to describe this lose-lose scenario that religious gatekeepers always set up. It was true in the ancient Near East. It's true in 21st century America. He tells, he tells it like this. John was an ascetic. He didn't drink alcohol. He ate only little things. Happened to be bugs. But, I mean, 
John, by the way, probably had taken what's called a Nazarite vow, which is this very strict um, dietary and uh, all kinds of other things. John acted that way, and then he said, they said he had a demon. And then, speaking of himself, the Son of Man came. He was decidedly not an ascetic. In fact, it sounds like he enjoyed life quite fully, eating and drinking. And they called him a glutton and a drunkard and com condemned him for the company that he kept. Do you see this lose-lose scenario? Have you seen the version of it that we have in America today? In, in, in Western Christianity today, there's a hundred different versions of it. You're probably thinking of one, and the person next to you is thinking of a different one. But I'll give you one example that probably all of the women in the room will recognize instantly. How sexy is too sexy for a good Christian woman? is my face right now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh. I would like to request that this did not come out of my time. <laughs> no more water. Um, you know what I mean, right? <laughs> if you go to summer camp or if you go to, to Christian school and you're wearing a spaghetti strap, you get sent home. You're supposed to be modest and pure until the moment when you're supposed to be the opposite of all those things for your husband, right? And of course, it's a very heteronormative. Uh, that's not a version of the pain that I've ever felt, but I've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of Christian women and read many more online who've had some version of that. Thanks, Ben. Anyone want to pray for me before I drink water? <laughs> the point is, you can't win with these people. They are going to slam your life either way. Either you're John and you're, you're, you're not living your life fully, you're too conservative or you're, you're the wrong type of conservative or you're a little weird about being conservative or you're Jesus and you're a drunk. Sometimes I wonder, to go back to Romans 7 for just a second, I wonder if Paul's profound inner strife about his own actions and tendencies was partly a result of trying to walk that perfect line for his entire life and failing on this side and then on that side and then on this side and then on that side. That's entirely speculative. There's nothing in the stories of Paul in the Bible that makes me think that's necessarily true. Just my human intuition wonders if maybe it is. If you don't like it, just let it go past. Now, this is not to say that what is usually called sin, is not a real thing that we ought to be concerned about. We prayed the 
Book of Common Prayer's Confession of Sin right off the screen behind me earlier in today's service. We'll probably pray it again in two weeks. And in fact, there are some verses in the Gospel reading that got snipped out of the lectionary. Did you notice that? If you were reading along in your Bible, did you read the part in between? Um, they have to do with Jesus saying, woe to this city and woe to that city. It's going to be worse for you than this and worse for you than that. On the day of judgment, you better look out. By the way, he's, he's giving woes to all of the uh, Israelite Jewish supposedly holy cities and saying you should be more like these other cities and they're all Gentile cities. That's a little bit of context. I'm not sure, by the way, the editors of the Revised Common Lectionary hop over that part of the Gospel reading. Maybe they just wanted to have it shorter to be read in service. But I do notice that sometimes they seem to want to dodge past the harshest stuff in the Scriptures. It happens in the Psalms all the time. It's like, we'll read the part that says, Oh, God, you're so great. You are so very big. We're all impressed down here. (laughs) And then it skips over the part about, like, Would you please crush the bones of my enemies? And then it comes back and says, the Lord loves everybody. That's what the lectionary does sometimes. Um, To put them maybe in the best light I can for this occasion of skipping over, maybe they're trying to get to what I actually think is the most important part of this gospel reading today. Because right after all those condemnations of all those supposedly holy cities who rejected him when he went to minister in them, he says this, come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens. By the way, when the Bible says all, can we believe it? And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so I would say to you that if any Christian teacher ever tries to put a burden on you that is not light and heavy, it is by definition not the burden that Jesus wants you to carry. And you can say, no thank you. Try carrying that one yourself. Which is the thing that Jesus said to the Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees. You bind up heavy burdens or force people to carry them. You're not willing to lift a finger. So what do we make of all this? Is it Jesus versus Paul? Do we have to choose Jesus over Paul? By the way, if we did, I would choose Jesus. But I don't really think that that's what we usually have to do. And so let me give you a brief analogy, hopefully one that makes more sense than, you know, building a parking garage on a termite mound. I want you to imagine, and maybe you can visualize this, that you're, you're at a, a crossroads. The road you're at has now split into three different directions, and you can choose one, two, or three. And road one, when you think about this tension between sin and grace, or whatever you might want to call it, road one is the road of self-loathing and restriction. Some of you feel like, yeah, that's the road I've been on the whole time. Road two is the road of, oh, nothing matters. I can do whatever I want. Some of you are like, that sounds pretty good. I'll try that one. And road three, probably I could word this better, but let's go with this. Sure, nothing matters except that it does. So, So don't fret, but also... Strive every day to grow in holiness and to be more like Jesus. But if you miss, it's okay. 
The third road, it seems to me, is what the mature Christian life looks like. It's sort of the enlightened Christian life, if you'll allow me to borrow a word from another religious tradition. It's the road where you're not constantly burdened by shame. In fact, you're not burdened by shame at all. You have removed that yoke from your shoulders. Where you do not have an unhealthy obsession with your own shortcomings. But where you also do realize that your action and sometimes your inaction has consequences for other people and for yourself. And we've just agreed we're not going to hate ourselves anymore spiritually. And so we have to include ourselves in the group of people that we can harm when we don't live up to the standard that God has for us. See, you don't have to throw the standard away in order not to be burdened by the heavy yoke of conservative religiosity. There is a third road. And on that road, you practice a constant state of repentance. I I don't mean like the constant state of repentance from summer camp where you repent on Tuesday night and you repent on Wednesday night and you repent on Thursday night, right? I mean a constant state of metanoia, to use the Greek word, which is a change of mind. You are open to what God has for you and shows you a change of heart. You are truly being transformed in who you are into who God wants you to be in a way that does not continually heap shame and self-flagellation on yourself. But where you are conformed to the mind of Christ a little bit more every day, a little bit more every day, a little bit more every day. And this third road, this way of life, should not result in a self-centeredness and it should not result in a self-condemnation. And if you want my hottest take of the day, it's that those two things are often the same. Someday I'll tell you the story of how I learned that about myself. But give me 10 seconds unplanned to say this. Hating yourself all the time is just one other way of centering yourself all the time. But what Jesus says is that his yoke is easy and his burden is light and if you come to him you will find rest for your souls. So let me offer you a brief reflection on this. What are your heavy burdens? Are your heavy burdens from the rigors of your life? Are they the bundles of religious expectations that someone insisted you carry without lifting a finger to help? Are your heavy burdens physical, emotional, spiritual? Jesus says he'll give you rest. What would it feel like to rest from those heavy burdens? What would it feel like for you to rest from your heavy burdens? Would it mean setting them down for a moment to get refreshed? Would it mean handing them over to Jesus? Would it mean untying that wooden yoke and throwing it on a bonfire? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. 
and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How would it feel for you to exchange the heavy, difficult load you're carrying for the easy, light load that Jesus gives you? Can you allow yourself to trust in him? Will you allow Jesus to save you? I'm not going to make an altar call. But some of you need to get saved by Jesus. (laughs) Saved from, yes, your own legitimate sins and shortcomings. We all need to be saved from that. Will you allow Jesus also to save you from your relentless tendency to hate yourself? Will you allow Jesus to save you from the unreasonable and ungodly expectations of religion as you've been taught it? What would you say to Jesus right now? Imagine yourself at that fork in the road. There's three roads before you. Jesus, I believe with all of my heart, stands there at that third road, beckoning you to come down that way. And so I'll ask you, will you go with him? For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.